Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. If you are a leader for long enough, your organization is going to face a crisis. It might be a massive weather event, a war that interrupts your supply chain, a cybersecurity breach, or another type of disruption. How prepared you are and how you respond to that crisis will determine if it's devastating or an opportunity. Today's guest has been working in crisis situations for two decades. Dominic Bowen was a member of Australian Special Forces. He's done humanitarian work after earthquakes and tsunamis, and he now helps organizations prepare for the certainty of the next unexpected challenge. In our conversation, Dominic and I discuss organizations' greatest vulnerabilities, what leaders should be thinking about in terms of business continuity, and how effective crisis management can lead to unplanned opportunities. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Dominic, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show, Don. Let's get started by talking about what you do for work. So my title is International Risk Manager or Senior Advisor with a risk management consulting firm. So risk management is one of those really fantastic job titles that doesn't actually say anything. Now, intrinsically, we're quite good as humans. If we weren't good at identifying risks, if we weren't good at building resilience, we would have died like the dinosaurs and like other animals that have gone extinct. But we're pretty good. We're pretty adaptive. The conversations that we have nowadays about climate change, we talk now a lot more about climate adaptivity, not as opposed to some of the other topics, because there's a recognition that we're going to hit 1.5 degrees. We're probably going to hit 2 and maybe 2.5 degrees increase in global warming. So we have to adapt to that. And that's what a big part of risk management is. It's about looking at the opportunities, wanting to pursue those, but then identifying what do we need to do to adapt, to position ourselves so that we have the right positioning, the right resilience to be able to succeed in whatever it is we're doing. Can you talk about the types of clients and you don't have to talk about specific brands or labels, but are these organizations, are these multinational organizations, are they governments, are they NGOs? What types of organizations are you typically working with? It's really exciting. And that's one of the things I love about my job is that I actually have a really broad base of clients. So I have some very wealthy individuals and wealthy families but also some very large telcos, some of Europe's largest telecommunications companies, largest construction companies, largest engineering and management consulting companies. But the process we use, whether you're a telecommunications company that's just realized in, in February that perhaps some of your systems or some of your processes have been outsourced to Lithuania and then they've been outsourced again to Ukraine. And then, oh my gosh, we didn't think we had any exposure to Ukraine and Russia, but we just found out we do. How do we manage that? Do we cease operations? Do we put ring fencing around it? So those are the sort of exciting things that, that I get to work with companies and, and individuals on every day. <laughs> so this, this probably is a bit off topic, but do you find yourself to be a pessimist or an optimist? Because I would think about, I would think that in your line of work, you have to be thinking about not all of the upside and the benefits, but oh my gosh, all of the things that can go wrong. So, you know, what's your general day-to-day self-talk like? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I would instinctively call myself an optimist, but I'm also awesome at finding problems. I remember when I was 15, I, I worked at McDonald's like many of us. And when I wasn't working, but you'd go to McDonald's with, with friends, my other friends would love it. And they'd go in and they'd go, hey, Dom, point out 10 things wrong with this store. And I'd go, well, 
the ice cream machine's out of date. You can see that burger's um, expired by 10 minutes. You can see the French fries. They've And, you know, and, and they'd think it was hilarious that I could spot all these things wrong with McDonald's when I was, was 15. But, of course, that's what you do when you're, you're trying to mitigate risk. And I, I like to look at the opportunities. And that's where I'm like, oh, this is really exciting. You know, you want to invest in this country or you want to set up new operations in, in North Africa or in the Middle East. Okay, there's a lot of instability there. But this is exciting. Let's look at what the risks are. Let's fix that or let's mitigate the risk by outsourcing it or by lowering the likelihood or lowering the impact if the risk is materialized. And then let's pursue that risk with, with, real, with real excitement. So I think, I think I'm somewhere in the middle. That I, I definitely see opportunities, but I'm not blind to the uh, potential downfalls. How did your background prepare you for this? I was really blessed. I've, I've had so many blessings. I've had so many gifts that, that I really didn't deserve when it comes to, comes to my career. I spent a bit of time in the police force, but I was also a, a, a young officer in a, in a commando unit in the Australian Special Operations Command. And this was back in two, early 2000s. So the war on terror was, was very, very busy. And then in 2005 or 2004, there was the Boxing Day tsunami. You might remember you know, hundreds of thousands of people killed from all over the world but due to the tsunami in, in the Pacific Ocean. And quite a few of my colleagues who were part-time officers and soldiers in the, in the commandos actually deployed with big humanitarian organizations like the International Rescue Committee, Red Cross, and so on. And they asked me, would I be interested? I was an officer. I knew how to command teams, manage operations, do budgets. And they said, look, you know, would you be interested in getting involved? And I said, sure, I can put the police on hold and, and come across. And, and that didn't eventuate, but I was really curious. I was like, oh, I'm not going to deploy overseas as a, as a captain within the commandos. I wonder if the humanitarian sector is something I could do. And so I was pondering that. I started doing a bit of study. And then in 2005, there was the earthquake in Kashmir in Pakistan. And at the time, that was one of the, the largest humanitarian disasters, tens of thousands of people killed. And so I actually deployed to Pakistan, to Kashmir, in a part where because of the nuclear weapons and because of the line of control and the conflict with India, there hadn't been foreigners in that part of Pakistan for decades. So it was just such an amazing experience to be leading teams of doctors and, and nurses and that. And then needless to say, you know, the commanders at Special Operations Command started asking questions like, why have we got so many of these guys that are actually deploying overseas with humanitarian organizations? And then very quickly, we started getting deployments with the, with the military to places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Timor and Brunei and other places. And then from there, it really just launched a career. Once I'd done a few humanitarian deployments, then I'd done a few military deployments, and then other contracts came up. And really, then I just found myself going from, from Pakistan to Indonesia to Afghanistan to Iraq to India. To, and it was just bouncing from one country to another with different organizations. And it was just such an amazing experience, growing operations and you know, really challenging you know, people saying, look, it's not possible to build hospitals in Syria, which is 2011, 12, and 13, it was possible. It was just really, really difficult. You know, it's not possible to, to set up medical clinics in parts of South Sudan that are under rebel control. It is. It's just really, really difficult. And working through those challenges and managing the risks and learning a lot of lessons, falling over a lot, but then getting back up and trying to do it better next time. And surrounding myself with, with really brilliant people, smarter people, people that have done more than me and learning from them. And that's, that's got me to where I am today. Yeah, you must be an adrenaline junkie. And it's so interesting because you've gone to all these really risky places and dynamic environments and you make your home in Scandinavia, which is <laughs> everything works there and, and everything, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a, a dichotomy, I would think. I, I don't think I'm, I'm an adrenaline junkie. I, I think it's all about risk tolerance. 
And that there's, we've all got different risk tolerances, but we've also got different risk tolerances to different topics. So for example, when I'm working, I was in Ukraine again recently, and my risk tolerance when operating in places like Ukraine, uh, near, the, near the front line in places like Kharkiv, Kramathorsk, Zaporizhia, Odessa, the places that are really quite insecure, you know, I feel quite comfortable. I feel quite calm and I make good decisions. You know, when I look back in hindsight, I spend a lot of time reflecting and looking back on the decisions I make. And I think I make good decisions in those sort of environments. But you put me on a crowded train in Stockholm where people are coughing and sneezing and not following basic hygiene and public health practices. My heart rate is high. I get really irritable. I feel very uncomfortable and I feel very nervous. And so, you know, people would say, but it's just the common cold or maybe it's COVID. But those sort of things I feel very uncomfortable with. But operating in a war zone, I'm very comfortable with. So I've got a really low risk tolerance when it comes to public health and you know things like on trains and buses. But I've got a very high risk tolerance when it comes to, to operating in that. And I think that's an important part of building resilience about identifying where are your strengths, where are your weaknesses, where are your vulnerabilities, and where are you comfortable working with. And then once you know that, then you can pursue things that you're congruent with. And that's where I think congruency is such an important aspect, along with obviously self-reflection. What do you mean by congruencies? We talk about our values and our morals. Now, some people, their values and morals, you know, they might value friendships, or they might value loyalty, or they might value excitement, or they might value being famous, or they might value money. And that's okay. Whatever your values are, whatever you're pursuing, that's fine. That's you. That's what, where your, your moral compass sits. But knowing that is a really critical step. And you can use the, the concept of congruency with your business practices. And that's where so many organizations have mission statements, but they don't live them. And they, most organizations don't have risk appetite statements. And you know, boards and, and senior executive teams often say, oh, we don't need those, or they're too hard to define. I'll push back every time on that. Most things I'll sort of accept, but that's something I have to really push back on because having a really clearly defined mission is, is vital. And then from there, you can start defining your risk appetite about the sort of workplace accidents, the sort of loss of financial investments, the sort of tax discrepancies, your ethics policies. And all those things can then be defined out of that. But you've got to sit down and actually force yourself to actually define what are we comfortable with? And it's not a matter of holding anyone to blame. It's about setting your compass. And once you've got that, then you start heading in that direction. And then you can look back every three months, every six months and go, are we, are we on track with that? No, we're having more workplace accidents or we're losing more money on investments or we're losing money on research and development. Okay, are we comfortable with that? Yes or no. But that ensures that we are acting congruent and congruently. When you think about the top vulnerabilities for organizations, what, what comes top of mind for you? You know, before 2019, businesses either didn't have or they only had poor business continuity plans. If senior leaders just ask one or two questions like, oh, when did we last practice our business continuity plan? Or what have we tested our business continuity plan against? Most organizations, they would have seen it. Oh, well, oh, we haven't tested it. Or, oh, we've only looked at it from an IT perspective. Or they would have got an answer that straight away would have thought that, okay, this is a plan we need during a disruption. Or if it's a crisis, this is a plan we need during an extraordinary event that could threaten our company. And the person answering me isn't really confident. Okay, I need them to be confident. I need them. You know, if you, if you asked a firefighter, oh, what are you going to do if there's a fire? And he or she said, well, maybe we, you'd be like, oh, gosh. Okay, <laughs> this is a problem. And it's the same in business. We, we don't ask just those one or two questions to the people that report to us or the people that are preparing information and just showing the courage to go, 
hey, this is okay. If you're not ready, that's on me because I'm the boss or I'm on the board. So if you're not ready, I haven't been giving you the resources. I haven't been giving you the support. So don't take this as an attack. I just want to know, you know, talk to me about our business continuity plan. Talk to us about our crisis response processes. Ask two or three questions. Okay, all right, maybe maybe we need to spend a bit more time on this. And But showing the courage to do that and having the courage to own that and then rectify it, I mean, that will go huge ways. If you do that as a business leader, you're already above 90% of the competition. That will give you a competitive advantage to be able to pursue other opportunities that companies, your competitors won't be able to. There are a couple of elements that I think can go really nicely with courage. And that, uh, and I did an episode with a guy by the name of Tom Fishman. He's CEO of a comp- or an organization called Starts With Us. And what they do is they're producing content to help bridge the political divide in the US. And courage is one of their mainstays. But they also say that curiosity and compassion go along with cur- courage. And I think it's interesting is like when you're a curious leader, and you're a compassionate leader, people will tolerate the boldness required for you to be courageous <clears throat> because they know you're not doing it. It's not self-serving. You're compassionate about it. You're generally curious. So you you want to know more. You want to solve problems. And so I've, I find that those three things can go very well together and, and give leaders permission to be very bold and courageous. Well, I think I think you're right, and I loved your interview with with Tom Fishman. I think that the work he's doing is is really important, and I think those points, you know, being curious, being compassionate, having courage, you know, I think they're they're going to be critical for all business leaders. I mean, there's ambiguity and uncertainty everywhere in the world, and the linear route that we used to follow when we're doing forecasting, or when we're doing planning, or when we're developing our strategies, is simply not applicable anymore. Life is getting harder and more challenging which also means there's significant opportunities because anywhere there's a problem, there's a business opportunity. But it means we're not going to necessarily be able to follow the linear route anymore. And that's where we're going to need to be curious. We're going to need courage. We're going to need compassion. Compassion to ourselves when we make mistakes, but definitely compassion for our colleagues and, and the teams all around us. I think about climate change and I see it as our greatest vulnerability as a species, not short-term, but long-term and long-term being you know, let's say 30 years and beyond. And I I believe that we have all of the technology needed in order to solve the crisis, but not necessarily the political will and the unity and how are we going to roll it out and all, you know, all of the logistics to, to address it. And, but, but I also see it as like, yes, it's a threat, but I see incredible opportunity. There's going to be a thousand innovations required in order for us to successfully combat it. You know, so I see it from from that element as well. And it, it goes to support what you were just talking about is like, well, when there's a crisis or when there's a risk, there's an economic opportunity or there's a solution that's required for that. And so innovators will think in that way. And I, I wonder, if, I mean, I, I'm assuming that that's, how you feel about any of these risks and vulnerabilities that organizations face. Yeah, I was running some crisis management training recently in Eastern Europe, and I had these leaders, and they were fantastic leaders. It was a really good group. It was one of the, you know, often you find yourself speaking to a group of people and you sort of feel intimidated. Oh my gosh, I should be sitting here listening to them. But they brought me in. They wanted me to facilitate some workshops for, for a week. And one of the things I said to them is, you know, you're here, you're, you know, you want to become stronger and more confident when it comes to crisis management. 
And crisis management is scary. If it wasn't scary, it wouldn't be a crisis. But one thing you have to remember is that this is also a period of immense opportunity. Not only because companies that get through crisis successfully generally increase their shareholder value, um, because companies and, and shareholders sort of look at them and go, oh, not only did they have a crisis, they actually successfully navigated it. This is a company I want to invest in. So they're, they're, the company value goes up. But also because when you're going through a crisis and everything is in such a flux, that's a fantastic opportunity to pivot, to change, and to pursue things faster than what you would normally do. I mean, let's look at work from home. You know, it's all now taken as a sort of a, a normal that, you know, if you've got a job where you can work from home, then you're allowed to work from home at least a couple of days a week. That, was, that wasn't the norm in 2019, but in a space of just a couple of months, not only became the norm, it became that you had to. So change can happen really, really quickly. And then, of course, some of the huge benefits we saw from that, we're now more comfortable recruiting people that live in other cities and other parts of the country and other parts of the world in many cases, because we realize that it can work and we set up the systems and processes. And it's the same with crisis management. You know, when you're getting your organization through a crisis and you're trying to get back to recovery and rehabilitate the organization, that's an opportunity to go, okay, how are we in this crisis? What are the opportunities? Where do we want to be at the end of this? Do we want to be where we were two weeks ago? Or actually, do we want to be somewhere better? Do we want to be somewhere stronger? And do we want to use this as an opportunity to leap forward and grab new opportunities? And more often than not, there are opportunities out there for you to grab as opposed to just dealing with the problems. I kind of asked this question already, but I'll ask it again. And what I'm interested in is having you talk about what the the top vulnerabilities for organizations are in your mind and cyber comes to top of mind and natural disasters and and climate change longer term so you know when you think of of the top vulnerabilities what are they and then i want to get into some that might not be so obvious for organizations when i appeared on your podcast we talked about mental health and we talked about employee engagement and culture things like well that's not really risk management well yes it is so give us kind of like these are the ones that i always talk about whenever i'm presenting to an organization or you know doing a speech and then let's talk about some of the the less known vulnerabilities so i think at the at the macro level uh in January, February, when I got back from Ukraine, people were asking me, business leaders were asking me across Europe, what is the likelihood that Russia is going to invade Ukraine? And my answer was, was fairly straightforward. Russia is, going to Ukraine, Russia is going to invade Ukraine in the same way that China is going to invade Taiwan. The only difference is timeframes. And we've seen that, that Russia obviously has invaded Ukraine. And I think what, one of the things we saw with Nancy Pelosi, the the House Speaker's visit to Taiwan a couple of months ago, is how quickly China's response was and how effective China's response. They effectively locked down the entire country, surrounded the country, and fired missiles over the country You know, within the space of 24 hours. I mean, it was a complete domination of the sea, air, not the land, but at least the sea and the air around uh, Taiwan. And we've seen China's actions throughout the South China Sea and throughout the Pacific that really is there's two steps forward and then countries like America, perhaps with some assistance from the UK and a little bit of assistance from Australia, sort of push China back and, and, and try and manage that. But really it's two steps forward, only one step back and then two step forwards. Now, China is a, is a growing power and you know on the International Risk Podcast, I've interviewed a few people about this. And one of the things that I've consistently keep hearing from, from people that are a lot more informed and a lot smarter than me and that have spent a lot of time studying this is, we shouldn't be seeing this as a new trend. 
it's a new trend to us. It's a new trend to anyone you know of our generation. But it's not a new trend when you look back over the last two to three thousand years. You know that that would be a resettling to how things were with China being the largest and most powerful country in in the world. And I think there needs to be not necessarily an acceptance of it, but a recognition that that is the trend. That is that is where we're going. And there'll be countries like America and many others that will push up and resist against that. Now, that's really not for 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 me to say whether that's right or wrong. What it is for me to do is to go, okay, how do I, how should I position myself as Dominic Bowen, as an international risk manager, as someone who has a podcast, who has a family, who has a house? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my businesses, for my clients, for my family? And then to be taking action around that and to be to be considering that. Now, of course, depending on what your role is and what your in the world is, you know, you could be analyzing that, you could be looking for opportunities and, and looking for risk. But I think all of us need to be going, okay, at a macro level, there is going to be significant challenges. Now, whether someone like Donald Trump or someone similar wins the next election in the US, you know, we could see a much more assertive, a much more aggressive pushback against China. How China responds to that, we will have to see. I mean, the, the China had its 20th Party Congress in November, and we saw the, uh, the standing and the Politburo members appointed to that. And they are very loyal to the Xi Jinping and I think we're going to see a much more assertive, a much more confident leadership now that it is consolidated. And I think any US administration in particular, but really any administration globally, is going to have to really consider how they respond to increasing influences of countries like China. We see Germany as they're pivoted away from Russia. Germany has pivoted straight to China. Now, some people have criticized the German government for that, saying, well, you've just jumped out of the fire and into the frying pan. But that's a decision that the German government has made. Other countries are making different decisions. But depending on your business and and your individual circumstances, that requires some consideration. At the more nuanced level, at the, I guess, the more subtle level towards the other end of the spectrum, I think business leaders and really all of us need to be really considering the the more subtle issues and you know we 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 see things like black lives matter take a huge amount of space in the media and then dissipate we see the me too movement take a huge amount of social media and media attention and then dissipate we see diversity inclusion on different ends of the the political spectrum attract different levels of attention where you sit politically is going to influence your views and your upbringing and your education on a lot of these issues but i think you again going back to the the values of yourself the values of your company is going to really help you identify and how to navigate a lot of these issues. And they're either risks or opportunities, depending on how you face them. I've got this fantastic analyst in my team, and I'll often be coming up, you know, we'll be trying to solve a really big puzzle, a really big challenge, either for a client or, you know, it might be a, an international issue that we're, we're trying to explore. And she and I often say, you know, and I'll, I'll be unpacking this for about, you know, on this big monologue for five minutes and talking about these big macro level issues. And I'll look at her and I'll go, so Irene, what do you think? And then she'll look at me, you know, with this very respectful, very kind face, and she'll be like, why don't we ask the person? Or why don't we ask the client? Or why don't we pick up the phone and, and, and speak to the embassy? Or and, and 99 out of 100 times, I'm like, huh, yeah, that's, we could do that. And yep, that would be the right thing to do. Let's just ask, <laughs> let's just ask them. And I think, as the, I think as leaders, we often feel we have to have all the answers. We have to understand everything. But you know what? We don't. We have to just sit down with a couple of employees at lunchtime in the, you know, by the coffee cooler or have a formal meeting and just go, hey guys, when I look around the boardroom, I see that everyone is male or everyone is white or everyone is heterosexual. 
or everyone is a certain group, or we don't have a lot of this, or we have too much of this, or not enough of something else. And I think just asking the question, hey, is everyone comfortable with that? Is that reflective of our company? Do we want that to be reflective of our company? Is this something we should address? Is this reflective of our employee base? Is this reflective of our consumer base? How did we end up in this position? Are we happy to be in this position? And at the end of the day, if you have this conversation, the answers are, yep, consumers are happy, employees are happy, profitability is good, this is congruent with our values and our mission statement and where we want to be going and why we were founded. Okay, great. You've had that conversation. You can be confident as you step forward into the future. But if you start getting a few pushbacks or if you're like, oh, maybe this isn't quite right, okay, then just explore. Just explore. No one, has, no one said you have to fix these problems overnight. I traveled recently to Scotland, to London, and to Malta. And this is my fifth trip to Europe this year from the United States. And I noticed something this trip that I hadn't noticed on the previous trips, and that was who was doing the work, particularly the service work. I was at a hotel in London, and almost all the staff were Pakistani. And then my drivers were Indian and Sri Lankan in in London. And then I went to Malta, and all of the service workers there were from, one was from Libya, there were some Pakistanis, and, and then the World Cup was going on too. And we know that the there were foreign workers, a lot from Pakistan, but, but from all over third world countries. And I realized at that moment that culture is going to be the key to attracting talent. And it always has been, but we've thought about it really at these micro levels, meaning my organization's culture. American Express's culture, 3M's culture is what's going to attract people. But I started to realize like, no, it's bigger than that. And particularly with aging populations in mind, well, China, they might have 1.4 billion people right now, but it's a very aging population. And some projections, I think the UN believes that they'll have 700 or 800 million people by the end of the century. So that's a that's a huge decline in the, the number of citizens there. And so potentially they may have to start to attract people into jobs, service positions to take care of this aging population. But the United States is going to have to do that. Europe is already doing that. And so just wonder what your thoughts are on these kind of macro cultures to attracting talent. When I moved to Sweden, I thought, oh, yeah, Sweden, Northern Europe, that'll be fine. I've lived all over the world. Never had, never, I kid you not, Don, I've never had culture shock until I moved to Stockholm. Now, I've been coming and going here for quite a few years now. And honestly, at least once a week, I feel like I get hit in the face with a spade because of, and I, I'm not joking, like where I'll actually stop and I'll be like, oh my gosh, what just happened then? Like, did that really just happen? And culture shock is real. And if, if an Australian who's lived all around the world can feel culture shock in Sweden, and that's quite common, you often hear expatriates that live in Sweden and find that, you know, what is it, what do we need to do to, if we're going to say, you know, Sweden, if you're looking at some of the big employees here and they're going to be bringing in people from all over the world, what do we need to do to attract the right talent and then to, to help them assimilate and to build that resilience so that they stay with the company and they contribute to the company. Because of course, you know, happy employees are good employees. They're employees that, that put in, but that requires a real consideration of our, of our corporate culture. And it's a big, big, big topic. And I think it's something we need to be looking at a lot more if we're going to build resilient companies. Yeah. And I think, you know, at the, at the company level, we've been talking about this for a long time, but I don't think we're thinking about it at the country level. And, you know, how open are we to 
you know, allowing people to be themselves within our country, you know, having cultures that allow people to flourish, that allow them to be themselves. I think these are the sort of topics that the companies need to be grappling with. And, you know, if we look at, if we look at IT professionals, you know, I had a, I've had a couple of conversations with very large European companies and they're not able to attract the, the, the expertise. They just can't, there's not enough in Europe. If you look at the, the, the need, especially when you look at the legislative needs now, and that's one of the positive things that have come out of the conflict in Ukraine, the, the huge tragedy that is that war, is that governments across Europe are now strengthening their requirements. Com- companies need to have stronger information security and cybersecurity systems in place, but that requires people to design and maintain and monitor and, and, and patch this. And there's simply not enough talent in Europe. And so companies are, are being forced to look outside of the EU or outside of the European Union to recruit this talent. But then you've, you've got the companies going, well, no, they've got to be Europeans. You know, there's security constraints. If we bring people from India or we bring people from China or we bring people from Pakistan to manage our sensitive servers and our sensitive systems, that's opening us up to, to new risks. And I think they're, they're, they're really complex issues. And as you said, culture is one, but Risk management is, is always like that. You, you mitigate one risk. You say, okay, we need to have stronger systems. Okay, so we need to build stronger systems. So that means people, okay, so tick, we've mitigated that risk. Okay, but now we've brought in a new risk. And that new risk is people from a new country or people with a new culture. And what risks does that bring? And now some of those risks like insider threat of espionage, of loyalty, you know, they're, they're valid things to be considering. But that's a risk to be mitigated. And, you know, you're just going to continually be working down that track of mitigate risk okay, you now bring in a new risk. Okay, let's mitigate that. You bring in a new risk when you do that. Let's mitigate that. And hopefully every time you're lowering your exposure to risk, but it's a, it's a never-ending process. Every time you change the environment, you're influencing and you're, well, you're changing the environment. So you're going to bring in new risks. And, and I think culture, as you said, is, is a big part of that. So we talked very early on in, the, in this conversation about a natural disaster, the tsunami, earthquake, these types of really incredible events, disruptive events, what do the most resilient organizations or what have the most resilient organizations done to bounce back from a situation like that? Having a plan is the first step. I'm sorry, no, the first step is understanding the environment you're working in, of course, having the conversation with people, developing appropriate plans, but then testing them. And that's the thing that we, we don't make time for. We really don't make time for. And I recognize that executives are late, busy. And I recognize they've got a lot on their plate, but surely ensuring business continuity, ensuring that you can get through disruptions, keeping in mind we are working and living in a persistently volatile environment where risks and disruptions will come, not might come, not could affect your business, will definitely come in the near future. So surely that's a critical spot for the chief financial officer, for the chief marketing officer, for the director of communications, for the director of finance. Surely that's a critical responsibility for all these leaders. So saying to them, once a month, for one or two hours, we're going to go to the boardroom, we're bringing someone in, and we're just going to walk through an exercise. And you start, and at the start, it's a walk. It's just, okay, guys, what would we do? And it's just a talk. And it's a, when I do it, the first one's just a talk, a conversation. It really is just a talk for an hour or two. And then at the end of it, okay, what did we learn? Okay, great. Next one, there might be a couple of slides on the screen. It'll be, okay, one of your plants in Pakistan has had a malfunction. Or there's been a fraud case identified in Singapore. Okay, how are you going to work through that? And just brainstorm. Then the third one. Okay, then it starts getting a bit more. Then you start having media releases. You start having complaints. You start having whistleblowing reports. 
and the team's got to work through these crises. And with time, they're building their muscles. They're forced to reach back, which is a really important pedagogical or learning technique to be able to reach back and grab knowledge and then to bring it forward and then to utilize it. So they're reaching back to the last time they had an exercise, to the topics and themes and learnings they had. And then they're employing it in a slightly more complex scenario. And then you just do that for one or two hours, once a month. And after 12 months, you've done that 12 times. And it's only cost you 12, maybe 24 hours. Um, And straight away, you've now got a team that's ironed out their issues. They've worked through a lot of their processes. And now they're able to handle quite complex problems, which they definitely weren't able to do a year ago. And you know what? If a crisis impacts after six months, sure, you haven't had a full 12 months of workshops but you've had six more than you had otherwise. So I think testing, and not testing the people, again, it comes down to if someone, if the marketing director or the VP of finance makes a mistake during a tabletop exercise, it's not a criticism on them. It's a criticism on the the systems and the processes that need to be strengthened because people should have the skills and capacity to do that. So I think having these workshops, walking and talking through possible scenarios and testing your existing plans, that's the biggest thing you can get you could do to set a community up for success or a business up for success. What advice do you have for leaders to prepare themselves to mitigate risk and to help their organizations be more resilient? I think as a, as a leader, it's really important to be be generous with yourself, be generous and recognize that you don't have to know everything. You're going to make mistakes and you don't have to know everything, but what you do have to know is who to surround yourself with. And that's a, a, a critical a critical component, surrounding yourself with, with, with good advisors. Anyone who's listened to my podcast has heard me say once before, a long time ago, I was an advisor to the governor of Victoria, and I was actually his, his senior advisor. And one morning after a meeting with the governor, I was back at my desk with some of the other advisors working through some issues, and the, the state secretary came in. You know, he's a very important person, and he sits down, and his, his name was, was Charles, and he sits down and takes his glasses off and has this very, very powerful sort of pose, but he's like, how's everything going? And it's like, okay, this is what's coming is serious. I'm like, oh, very good, very good, Charles. Thank you very much. And he's like, you know, I don't expect you all to know everything. And we're like, okay, good. This is, this is going good. This is going good. He goes, but if the governor asks you a question in the morning, by lunchtime, I expect you to know more on that topic than anyone else in Victoria. Uh, and then we went, we understand. Yes, good. Good, good, good. Thank you very much. And then just walked out of the room. And, and the, the point was very clear. We don't have to know everything. And the governor doesn't have to know everything. But he does need to know who to go to. And his senior advisors, yeah, he's had three senior advisors with him you know, all the time, 24 hours a day. We have to be able to either know everything or be able to get that information really, really quickly. And I think business leaders need to use the same methodology. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to solve everything. But have systems in place. When there's a crisis, you should, not only should you, do you not need to solve it, you should not solve it because during a crisis, you're a leader, you're an organizational leader. You're not a crisis management leader, you're an organization's leader. But during a crisis, you should be quite confident to go, crisis management team, you're now enacted. You've got your resources. I'm giving you a mandate. I'm giving you a clear scope of work and a budget. Please go forth. I will be leading the organization. Brief me every day on how the crisis is unfolding. Dominic, what are the risks that keep you up at night? Look, it's, 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 it's really diverse. And I think probably the thing that keeps me awake most at night and keeps me working at my laptop until, until ridiculous hours every evening is really, have we done enough? Have we asked the right questions? Have we unpacked things enough? Have we, we dug a bit deeper? 
certainly the war in Ukraine is just just catastrophic. I've got friends and colleagues that are affected by it. The person who was driving me around in January, February is now on the front line. He's a wonderful man with you know just a young family that's now now in Europe and. You know, I, I think that that's a that's a huge tragedy. But the implications of that, the second and third order effects, and I think it's the second and third order effects from all risks that worry me the most. I mean, inflation, food crisis, energy crisis, those risks you can see, you can measure them, you can predict them to a level of certainty, you can mitigate them and you can position yourself. But it's what are the second and third order effects? I mean, if we look at the Arab or the spring revolution in 2010, 2011, that wasn't actually, I mean, yes, it was clearly a political uprising and clearly inspired by that, but it actually came around because of a food crisis, because of huge levels of de- de- desperation in North Africa and the Middle East. And I think we need to be better at looking at the second and third order effects of crisis. Going, okay, a food crisis is going to have dramatic impacts on populations, on malnutrition, on growth, on economic development. But what are the second and third order effects that are going to come out of this? Is it political instability? Is it trade wars? Is it disputes? Is it conflict? And I think having a look at all these things, you know, it takes a lot of time and a lot of intelligence. And, you know, you really, or you could spend your entire life trying to unpack these, unpack these issues, but trying to understand them, whether it's, you know, the thousands of illegal boreholes that are dug in Spain to grow the huge need that Europe has for Spanish avocados. I mean, thousands of illegal boreholes that are, that are massively leading to permanent drought. In places like Spain, or whether it's the the Grand Renaissance Dam that Ethiopia has built, that is impacting 300 million people in East Africa that rely on the Nile. I mean, these are issues that don't pop up every day, but they impact all of us every day. We just don't realise it. And again, you just scratch the surface and go, "Oh yeah, that would impact me. I do feel that. I just didn't realise where it was coming from." So that's probably the thing that keeps me awake every night: is am I looking at those second and third order effects of all the risks? Well, with a mind like that, you might not be getting any sleep. (laughs) (laughs) That is a problem right now. Dominic, where can people learn about your podcast? It's called the International Risk Podcast, correct? Yeah, Don, that's right. Thanks very much. I mean, look, you can you can find the International Risk Podcast on iTunes and Spotify and other places you download it. And you can also stream it directly from the internationalriskpodcast.com as well. And what will they learn by listening? So, so the risk, International Risk Podcast is, is really a lot of what we've been talking about, about trying to unpack what are the risks that we need to be understanding. And, you know, if we look at, we've had spies and special forces soldiers, government representative politicians, CEOs of different companies, communications experts, just coming on and talking about the risks that they see and how they manage and how they've successfully managed risks and how they've failed when trying to manage risks and the lessons they've learned from that. So we have a really wide variety of guests coming on the podcast. Yeah. Well, Dominic, thanks for your time and your expertise today. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. And thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We'll be back next week with Stanford's Dr. Fred Luskin. Dr. Luskin is the author of the book Forgive for Good. And we will talk about how forgiveness is a critical component of resilience. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.